Uh, I need to find a challenge to stats, so that's what I'm going to do. Do you guys have yours ready? I have mine ready. A challenge the what? What now? Challenge the stats, Dana. <laughs> it's a segment that we do at the end of the EDH rec cast. I probably should get that. Uh, I've got a list here. Let me dig one of them out of my list. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Joey, did you know the first french fries were not actually cooked in France? I sort of assumed that, but I'm worried about what the tail end of the setup of your joke is going to be. No, it's nothing dirty, they are just cooked in grease. <laughs> Good lord. You know, Matt, I swear, I think that you need to take medication for all of your dad jokes. Maybe some penicillin. Anyway, next, the man Stop. whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Looking around outside, Joey, I wish they would actually ban Veil of Winter. <laughs> That's a funny joke in both the dad ways and in the magic ways. <laughs> Excellently done. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we like to give that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? We're going to look at accidentally powerful commanders. That is right. On a recent episode of the Command Zone podcast, an episode about power levels, Jimmy and Josh made this really awesome observation that some decks and some commanders are just naturally very powerful. And the commanders would have to fight pretty hard to go below a power level of like six or seven. They just sort of start being really, really good just by their inherent abilities. While some other decks would actually struggle and take a whole lot of work to approach the power level of being at a six or a seven. So we wanted to tackle that concept in a bit more detail here because we thought that idea was so cool. And maybe go over what some of those specific commanders might be that fall into those different categories. But before we do, I want to ask, how were your guys' commander weeks? Did you play any fun games? How's your week been? Weeks been pretty good. I have been, I want to have a new deck done by the end of the year. So I've basically been kind of soft brewing decks online and trying to find something that jumps out at me. I've had no luck so far, but I've got like four or five different (laughs) potential things I'm eyeballing. So... (laughs) Uh, we'll see, but my goal is to have one by the end of the year, because I don't have any new decks built that have kept together this calendar year so far, so I like want at least one, one 2019 deck. That's so weird, Dana, the way that you approach deck building. For me, it's just like, ooh, this looks like a fun commander, maybe I'll build it. But for you, you have to analyze every specific tiny detail you have to find. A specific, okay, and then we'll put these on a wait list, and then we'll look at their specific, here's yeah. a list of pros and cons. It's just so funny, the analytical way that you approach deck building, which is usually more of an impulsive thing for someone like me. I just get a real kick out of that. Thank you. Yeah, actually, now having said it, I don't know if it was a compliment. I just It's an interesting difference. <laughs> anyway, Matt, how about you? How's your week been? Uh, my week was good. Got some games in over the weekend. We got to play Moldroth a little bit. Remember that Thought Gorger card you guys hated? Actually pretty good in a Moldroth Encounters deck. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, the game itself was a little interesting. Uh, sat down with somebody who... We, had, we talked about power levels. We had that conversation before the game. Um, 
and a gentleman said, you know, my deck's probably like a five or so. Like I win sometimes, but not not too often. And so he asked, well, what's your commander? We, you know, I have seven decks to pick from, depending on how powerful everybody is. And he's he's like, well, I don't want to show you until we 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 all pick our decks. So we all picked our decks. I decided to play Moldrotha. He flips over Sliver Overlord, <laughs> and then tutors for combos and wins on turn four. Oh, like it was it it was terribly like not fun, and it was one of those things where we we all kind of like okay, well, good for you, good 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 for you. Yeah. And then we we played a three player game the next game. So. It was one of those types of nights, and then afterwards, I was kind of in a, a weird headspace, so I accidentally bought into Pioneer. So, <laughs> yeah, the the, st- <laughs> the store that I was at, they had uh, Thing in the Ice and Arclight Phoenixes for about what the buy list is, about half the price of the cards on TCG Player. So I was like, well, I guess I'm playing Pioneer. Gosh dang it. Man, it's amazing what a weird and game so can now do I, to Matt now Morgan. I have a Pioneer deck. <laughs> I know. It's it's something. So. But what I'm hearing based on your EDH experiences this week is that a... A podcast topic about power levels seems sort of right up your alley. It does seem right up the alley, yes. It's a good time. Uh, It's all fresh, we could say. Yeah. Uh, Before we get to our main topic, though, we also do want to acknowledge that there has been a recent data deck purge that took place on EDHREC. And this is sort of calling back to those episodes that we had back on episode 70 and 71 uh, when we observed the changes from when EDHREC was collecting data from deck lists from all time versus now what we're doing, which is just data that is uh, coming from decks that have been added to deck building websites within the past two years or decks that have been edited that were there previously and have been edited within the past two years. What we're trying to do is keep the data a bit more current and a recent sort of data purge therefore happened in this most recent quarter, sort of keeping up with that similar two year cutoff. And we just wanted to take a quick moment on the podcast to acknowledge that as well, because there are some, you know, things to note about that. It's actually changed a little bit of stuff around. And as a quick sort of disclaimer to it, we also wanted to note that one of the reasons that we're doing this isn't just because we're trying to keep up with a bit of the magic zeitgeist. We also kind of needed to do it for performance reasons. In 2018 and 2019, get this, you guys, we collected something like two to three times more decks combined than in previous years. That was one of the main reasons that, you know, sort of helped us push into just collecting more recent data because we'd gotten so much of it, which is really crazy. But it's also just a really big sign that Commander's been growing that much for us to get that much data within the past two years. To be clear, this is something that we actually tested before it was implemented, and we noticed no major differences to the stats of the commanders. The biggest changes were things like rankings, like, for example, the most popular commanders, which actually is another reason why we wanted to bring this up. There's been a change in the number one commander. There has been, yes. So it turns out Moldrotha wasn't good enough. They had to redesign (laughs) it with Dethrone because Moldrotha has dethroned Atraxa as the number one commander in the past two years. So it it happened pretty recently. Um, In the past two years, Moldrotha has peaked over that 3,000 deck mark and knocked out Atraxa from the number one. So it's, it's pretty great to see. Uh, I know everybody has for many years, actually, since the tracks was kind of previewed, has kind of been the de facto. Oh, that's the most popular commander. Turns out Moldrotha has taken that spot. Right. And again, this is just because we've been editing those, you know, Commander 2016, where Atraxa originated. That's more than two years ago. So we've been reaching the point where some of those decks that haven't been touched in two or three years, they're sort of falling off that particular two year gap. If those decks 
you know, people go back to them and they edit them up, we'll be scraping that data again. But yeah, Muldrotho now sits at the number one commander within the past two years at 3,136 decks, while Atraxa is very, very closely behind at 3,058. So still a really, really close race, but it is just something that we want to acknowledge that more recent commanders are sometimes becoming more popular than the stuff that we had. It's weird to think that Atraxa is a quote, older commander, but Commander 2016 was three years ago, so some of the more recent stuff is dominating people's brewing potential these days. Well, not only is Atraxa an older commander, Atraxa is an expensive commander. At this point, the cheapest version of that card is $25, and if you're looking to make a deck which is required to add to our database, Atraxa is going to cost you 25 bucks out of the gate just to buy your commander versus a couple dollars from Moldrotha. Mm -hmm. So I, I would guess that trend is probably going to continue at least to a degree just because it's somewhat expensive to decide to build an Atraxa deck right now. Yeah, that's just it. Like we mentioned back on episode 70 and 71, we observed a bunch of changes from when we implemented uh, this shift last quarter. Commander, we have to acknowledge it, it is an eternal format where we can play cards from all over Magic's history, but it it, that doesn't mean that it's always going to stay the same. It is a living and breathing format. It does experience change, and we kind of want to keep up with that. And to be clear, we do actually want to have on the website an option for all historical data to be available for folks to view. But unfortunately, it's just not as simple as putting more manpower behind our database. We do want to get to it eventually to allow uh, folks who use the website a lot to see all that historical data or to be able to dig crazy deep to find decks and recommendations from stuff maybe four or five years ago. We know that this is something that people want, but it just takes a lot of work. And we will revisit it soon, but we have some other exciting stuff that is coming out soon. And overall, we just want to make sure that the recommendations stayed more current. Uh, Matt, what was the way that you put it about how we want to make sure that people can get more recent recommendations? You had a fun quote about it, I think. Yeah, so basically there was a, a comment that we saw that, that summarized it really well. Basically, we want to be giving you guys the most accurate and the most current information possible. You don't care so much about you know, how decks were being built five years ago. We want to show you how people are building decks today. That's what our goal is. So it's not that we're trying to hide anything. We just want the most accurate and the most pertinent information displayed so that people can make the most informed decisions possible. Yeah, exactly. We want to know how to build stuff today. Some of the old cards, some of the old guard, they might not necessarily be the same things that people are using nowadays, and we want to make sure that the site reflects that. Later on in the future, we hope that we can have both the most historical stuff and the most recent stuff, but it's something that's still in the wings, and we've got other stuff that does require a bit more focus. So in the meantime, focusing on the new information, the more current, the more relevant information is what we would like to do, and we can observe all of those changes on future episodes as well. For now, now that we have touched on that, let's move on to our actual main topic about commanders that are accidentally powerful. We'd like to start with those first uh, subject of commanders, that first sort of grouping of them, the ones that are really easy to make powerful, as in the ones that are really difficult to make bad. They sort of start with their abilities at such an obviously good and synergistic uh, method of deck building that it would be pretty difficult for them to sort of, quote, suck within a game. So we've got a couple of different examples of commanders that fit that bill here. Dana, what is one of those first commanders we've got here about being really crazy easy to make pretty darn powerful. The first one here would be Yurok the Desecrated. Um, for those who don't recall, Yurok is five mana in Sultai Colors with Death Touch and Lifelink out of the recent core set. And it basically is a doubling season for triggered abilities that go off when a permanent enters the battlefield. 
So things that commander decks tend to already run a lot of, things like Eternal Witness or Acidic Slime, this makes those twice as good. Yeah, it's this is actually an example that Jimmy and Josh mentioned on their episode of the Command Zone where they're talking about power levels. Yarok was one of the first ones that they mentioned too because these are things you're already doing. A lot of us commander players really enjoy using things with enters the battlefield abilities because we don't know if we can actually wait for a creature to use its tap ability or a triggered ability when it attacks. We like to make sure that our creature gets its ability as soon as it enters because we don't know if the creature is even necessarily going to make it to the next turn. And Yarok just plays right off of those because it's a panharmonica on the command zone and eternal witness gets even better but eternal witness would already be good even if you didn't have yarok in play yeah i mean it, there's just a bunch of different axes where it works it, it works because there's no downside not having your commander out the the things that work well with it already work great in their own and they work better when he's out there's just it's really tough to mess up a yarok deck <laughs> i would definitely say that you'd have to try really hard because even then it also has like other keyword abilities too, which is absolutely crazy making. It's just a little obnoxious that they made that card. And I'm still mad at it because I don't think that it's necessarily in the right colors for that ability, but it's not really the time or the place. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't even require a, a deep dive necessarily. Like, there's some commanders like Marisol, for example, that's that's a, quite a strong commander, but a lot of the things that are good with Marisol require you to delve pretty deeply into Magic's history to find some obscure cards. I mean, Yurik, you're going to build a pretty solid Yurik deck just using stuff that's been standard legal in the last few years i mean you want to hit acidic slime or something but there's just a lot of good etb creatures continuously being printed so not only is it easy to find things among your kind of overflow cards for the deck you're going to constantly get new toys for the deck yeah <laughs> and some of your toys can be lands yarag triggers off right. of any yeah. of the permanents doubling their triggers and so that can also open up the doors to sultai landfall shenanigans as well so the doors open even wider than we thought it's just absolutely crazy making M mystic monastery which we just got which is already a crazy strong card is twice as good here what's mystic monastery is that is it monastery did i say it wrong the the land from eldraine that puts an instant or sorcery back on top of your library Oh, Mystic Sanctuary. Mystic Sanctuary. Mystic Sanctuary. Yeah. Also, yeah. Oh, land triggered abilities. See, this commander's just crazy. Yeah. We don't even have to dig too far down. This commander just starts off being, yeah, it's really difficult to make this a bad commander. Matt, what's next on our list? So the next one on the list is Chulane, Teller of Tales. That is the Bant Commander 2 and Bant Colors for 2-4 with Vigilance, but that is the least of your worries when you're playing against <laughs> Chulane. Really so... Chulane reads, whenever you cast a creature spell, you draw a card, then you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. Then you can also pay three, tap Chulane, return target creature you control to its owner's hand. So if you follow Mark Nestico, former guest of the podcast at all on social media, he said he played Chulane once. He did an Elvish Visionary, put in a guy's cradle and shuffled up because he did not want to play anymore. He realized that that's not something that people should be allowed to do in magic. Uh, we've talked about Chulane, no. I think once a week on this podcast, because it keeps coming up in regards to like commanders that are very powerful or things like that. Uh, we've, we've talked about Chulane a lot, not always in the positive light, but we have to acknowledge it here when we're talking about commanders that are crazy easy to make powerful. On no less than four separate occasions, I have described the abilities of Chulane to someone who did not know what the card did and as soon as i finished telling them what the card did all of them had the exact same stunned silence reaction whereupon the only thing they could say is they made that a card they why'd they make that why'd they make that that seems way too good 
Can I see it? Are you reading it correctly to me? <laughs> Four different times I've introduced this card to someone and they've said, this seems wrong on a lot of levels. And uh, I do happen to agree. This is a very powerful place to be when all of your creatures go absolutely crazy bonkers. Yeah, it's really, really good. And, and again, similar to, to Maldrotha, you don't have to dig very deep into your collection to find creatures, <laughs> just period, <laughs> but like efficient creatures. <laughs> and they're constantly going to make good new ones that don't even require any synergy if it's a good creature that's synergy enough it's going to draw you a card and let you put something into play i mean it's it's fantastic yeah really really bonkers one there up next on our list we've got another example of a very powerful commander that is just powerful even if you're not doing much else in the deck that's prosh sky raider of care this is a jund dragon for six mana five five with flying and when you cast prosh sky raider of care you create X01 red kobold creature tokens named Kobold of Carekeep, where X is the amount of mana that you spent to cast Prosh. So if you cast Prosh multiple times using command tax, you can go from getting the six kobolds to getting eight or to getting ten or things like that. Prosh can also sacrifice another one of your creatures to get plus one plus zero until end of turn. The reason that we wanted to put this one onto the list is because even if you aren't doing anything at all with those creature tokens, which let's be real, in the deck, you're gonna be doing some stuff with those creature tokens. But even if you aren't doing anything with them, at bare minimum, when you cast this commander, you get seven bodies on the board, including a bunch of chump blockers for someone else's stuff. That's really powerful right out the gate. He hits like a absolute meteor when he comes down into play, even if you don't have other stuff going on, like a Perforos to deal a bunch of damage, or a doubling season to make those tokens bigger, or other sacrifice effects like Grave Pact, when you sacrifice the creatures for uh, Prosh's ability, there's a lot of stuff that you can do on top of the fact that playing your commander all on its own gives you seven entire bodies. And you didn't even mention Food Chain. I didn't even mention right, like, Food like Chain. Without, without even digging into the strongest synergies, it's a really, really solid commander. Yeah, just by the the sheer dint of playing that commander, you've done a whole lot to the board and people yep. suddenly have to look at your battlefield and be like, oh, you're kind of a problem. If you attack me, you could potentially sacrifice a bunch of creatures and hit me for a ton in the air with your commander. Oh, no. Like, there's so much impact just from him entering the battlefield that we have to acknowledge it here as a commander that's really difficult to make bad because when you play him, you get a whole lot of good. And your opponents can't solve that problem by removing Prosh because right. he just gets recast and does that same thing more. Exactly. Uh, hey, Matt, what yep. is the next one on our list? Yep. So next up, we have Perforos, God of the Forge. He is one of those Theros gods. He is a 6-5 legendary enchantment creature god with indestructible. And that's, again, the least of your worries. As long as your devotion to red is less than five, Perforos is not a creature. Also irrelevant. Here's where it gets saucy, though. Whenever a creature enters the, whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, Perforos deals two damage to each opponent. You can also pay two and a red. Creatures you control get plus one plus zero oh until end of turn. So you spam those bodies with Prosh, for example. You're dealing a load of damage in not very long of a time. Yeah, Perforos is excellent when you see him in the 99, but at the head of his own mono red deck, he's also pretty darn crazy because the only way that you would be able to build Perforos incorrectly is if you built it without any creatures in it at all, basically. <laughs> like, that's what you would have to do. The amount of damage that he's able to deal is really that intense. Well, you know, I I've seen this happen on two separate occasions where someone I know has built a, a Perforos deck 
Perforos token deck thinking, oh, this would be mono red tokens. It'll be, you know, it's not goblins, but there's some goblins in it. I get to do something a little bit different. And then very quickly realizes, oh, I just accidentally deal 30 damage to people <laughs> really, really easily on a commander that's very tough to remove. Yeah. Oh, man, that also makes it, especially because so many colors struggle to deal with enchantment removal just in general yeah. like a path to exile isn't even necessarily always going to hit perforos because very rarely will he be a creature that a path to exile can target per his devotion ability so yeah it's just very mm -hmm. easy even acknowledging that he's in monocolor and a color that some folks will uh decry as being uh, a color that isn't necessarily very good in this format perforos is still dealing a quite a lot of damage just by existing on the battlefield and watching you play creatures, which is a thing that you were going to do already. Yep. All right. Our last commander that we wanted to note as an example of one that's crazy easy to make powerful. What is it, Dana? Urza, Lord High Artificer. Another relatively new commander here to our list. Uh, Urza's mono blue, which as far as mono stuff goes... Um, you can be a blue, blue's okay. Uh, Urza enters the battlefield, you create a zero, zero colorless construct artifact creature token that gets plus one, plus one for each artifact you control. Um, and you can tap an untapped artifact you control to add blue. In addition to all of that bonker stuff, you can spend five to shuffle your library and exile the top card until end of turn. You can play that card without paying its mana cost. So everything you want to do to win a game is just there on that card. Yeah. You make artifacts, you can you you make the mock sapphires and you have a way to use all that mana to just get free card advantage. Yeah, and he makes a a little artifact cohort henchman person that the more artifacts you play, which is a thing you're going to be doing, it gets bigger so it can also potentially attack people. I mean, you probably won't because you've probably got so many blue or infinite combos with artifacts or something that he's so easy to enable with its activated abilities. But you also have the option to beat people to death with your artifact buddy too because Urza's is just doing that much crazy stuff. Or at the very least, discourage people from swinging at you when that, you know, 14-14 construct is there standing in the way. Yeah, yeah, really, really crazy stuff. And again, this is a monocolored commander, but we just wanted to highlight some examples of how those restrictions aren't always restrictions when the commanders are right. doing stuff that is that potent. But we didn't just want to talk about commanders that are really easy to make powerful. Those are just some examples of them. But there are also plenty of examples of commanders that are actually pretty difficult to make powerful. There are a lot of those, actually. And I suppose we should acknowledge, you know, there are also like monocolored vanilla legendary creatures from sets like Kamigawa. Like, we don't necessarily mean all of those. There's a lot of commanders that made, especially like back in 1998, like we're not going to be talking about the autumn willows of the world, I suppose. We wanted to highlight a couple of uh, commanders that showcase different types of examples, uh, features that make commanders a bit more difficult to build around. So as an example, our first one on this part of the list is Temet, Vizier of Noctamoon. This is the guy from Amonkhet. He is two mana, a white and a blue for a 2-2 two -two human cleric that says at the beginning of combat on your turn, target creature token you control gets plus one plus one until end of turn and can't be blocked this turn. He can also embalm himself from the graveyard for five mana, where he exiles himself from the graveyard and then creates a token of that is a copy of himself except that it is a just white zombie human cleric token Tamit was a really cool commander that sort of had that embalm mechanic he was a home for all of those embalm cards from the set of Amonkhet but even when he's operating at max power 
he's only giving one of your creature tokens unblockable, which isn't necessarily the, you know, same power level as what Yarok was doing or something like that. And this is just sort of an example of a commander that highlights the mechanic of a set, but since it only had one set or one block's worth of support for that mechanic, the mechanic is kind of underpowered within the deck when it comes to the world of commander rather than the world of limited where you were using that mechanic. Yeah, there's some other really good examples of, of commanders that fall into that space. Uh, Hikari, Twilight Guardian, does a lot of cool stuff with arcane and spirit spells, but there's just not a ton of arcane or spirit spells out there to be casting. And spirits got a little more help, but arcane not so much at all. Dapala with vehicles, sure, we get a, you know, a vehicle or two every block, but that's just not enough to really support something that you know really leans into that vehicle or dwarf theme like Dapala does. So... Yeah, it stinks that sometimes there's just commanders that we don't have enough support with. But at the same time, you know, they they do it very well. Just it's they they need more help than what they got. Right. And this isn't to say that you can't make a good version of these decks. There is going to be some sort of uh, cap on the power level. Timet's probably not going to be doing some of the crazy gross competitive stuff, for example. But if you are trying to bring that up to the power level of a six or a seven, it's going to take a lot more work than some of the commanders that we named in the previous section. What's another one of those commanders there, Matt? So the next one we got is Admiral Beckett Brass. You might remember Miss Beckett Brass from Ixalan. She reads, other pirates you control get plus one, plus one. And at the beginning of your end step, gain control of target non-land permanent controlled by a player who has dealt damage by three or more pirates this turn. And she is that Grixis color commander, just one in Grixis to get her out. So she's kind of an, an example of an obscure tribe that Kind of like what we were talk just talking about. There's not a ton of support, but even if there was a dedicated commander like Admiral Beckett Brass, there just aren't enough good pirates, for example, to make this work. You know, you have to deal, deal damage by three different pirates in order to get Admiral Beckett Brass's ability, which I bet you I can't even name three pirates, much less three <laughs> pirates that I want to be putting in a tech. Well, I mean, outside of Ixalan block... There were only 29 pirates in the game, just period. And, and quite a few of those are ones that came roughly around that point in time, either like in a core set or in, um, there's a couple in Kaladesh. But of those 29, the majority of them are like back from portal sets and from um, Rickettian Mask sets. Quite a few of them are just vanilla creatures. So if you want to run a pirate tribal deck, you're looking at basically being stuck running you know, at two, three with flying and no other abilities just to get a density of pirates you need to successfully pull that deck off. There's just not enough. Or you're using stuff like arcane adaptation and conspiracy to right. change the creature types of all of your creatures into pirate. But that also just means, again, you're sort of bending over backwards in a way that some other commanders don't inherently have to. That's just a disadvantage that you have with one of these obscure tribes. And pirates is hardly the only example of an obscure tribe. You know, something like clerics or Neheb's minotaurs, for example. Those are other tribes that are going to be a little bit more difficult to make a bit more you know, powerful compared to some of the more established tribes that we see in all all sorts of blocks, for example, like elves. They've got so much support that it's going to be a lot easier for them to collect the stuff that they need, as opposed to a bit more of an obscure tribe like Admiral Beckett Brass has. All right, next on our list, Dana, I'm going to pass it on over to you. Who is our next commander? Next on the list is Kemba Ka Regent. Is it Ka or Ka? Uh, Second one, right? It, it's definitely, Ka. you pronounce it like you are on the Starship Enterprise, and you're really mad that Spock died, so it's like Ka! <laughs> all, right. all right, all right, good to know. Um, 
At the beginning of your upkeep, create a 2-2 cat creature token for each equipment attached to Kemba. So number one, you're in mono white. And number two, you're kind of splitting your focus between two different things, equipment and making tokens. Yeah, that's why we wanted to put this one on the list, because Kemba, her strategy is pretty divided. When you see a bunch of equipment that Kemba wants to be holding to get the benefit of her ability, well, a bunch of equipment would usually mean a Voltron strategy, which is going to be pretty much dependent on just having the one creature that you focus all your attention into. But then, as a reward, Kemba goes and makes a bunch of tokens. A token strategy and a Voltron strategy... Those are two very, very different directions. So even when she's doing the most optimal thing, her deck's focus is split. It's weird. Well, it's doubly split. It's split because you want to have things that synergize with those tokens as well as things that synergize with equipment. But the equipment you want to run that makes you tokens is very different than what you would want to run in a Voltron deck. You want to run, if you're trying to focus on those tokens, you tend to want to run cheap, easy to equip equipment that you can give multiple things on Kemba very easily. And that doesn't lend itself to a Voltron strategy either. So your focus is really all over the place with Kemba. Yeah. And compare this to someone like Valduk. In fact, I think I wrote a commander showdown between Kemba and Valduk a long time ago. Valduk is also a monocolored commander who, when you have a bunch of stuff attached to him, he's going to make tokens that will hit people as a reward for having a bunch of those equipment and stuff on him. But Valduk, we didn't put on this list. He seems to work a bit more in tandem with those elementals, probably because they're just the one-time thing, as opposed to Kemba, who keeps them around and has to wait a long time until her upkeep to actually get those rewards. Valduk is more immediate. There just are some different delays between those two abilities that do make Kemba's strategy a bit more divided than the typical Valduk thing. Yeah, it's true. One of the most powerful things, and I may know a thing or two about Valduk decks, <laughs> but is Valduk does definitely get his his payoffs at the next combat step instead of having to wait an entire time around the table. That is a massive, massive difference. Yeah. And I, I would imagine we've all seen that Kemba deck before where the person, you know, opens up with multiple pieces of equipment very quickly, gets them on Kemba, makes a handful of tokens and generates a pretty scary board state. And then that first board wipe happens and they're just done for the rest of the game. They just can't keep up at that point, making a few two twos by putting bad equipment on their commander that has to be in play before the deck to function at all in the first place. Right, and that's not necessarily a thing that we see too much. Matt, you've gone on the record several times saying that Valduk is really easy to restart and reset, especially because of the different you know payoffs that you get from it. And I can even attest in person that it was easy for you to reset with Valduk and then immediately start cranking out those elementals and hitting me again. It was really, really frustrating, not gonna lie. But yeah, Kemba is a really cool commander. I actually really like Kemba, but it is an example of a type of commander that even when she's living her best life, her strategy is divided between two different things. And that is just the type of thing that might make a commander a little bit harder to make most optimal and most powerful compared to some other commanders whose strategies are a bit more focused or streamlined. Matt, who's next on our list? Next up, we have Ovia Pashiri, who comes to us from Kaladesh. She is just one green for a legendary human artificer. She has an ability of two and tap her to create a 1-1 colorless servo artifact creature token. You can also pay four and a green and tap her to create an XX colorless construct artifact creature token, where X is the number of creatures you control. This falls into the kind of a category where you have to use tap abilities that require you to wait and go an entire turn cycle. Sometimes you can, you know, find a way to get haste onto your commander, but those tap abilities are a little more difficult to take advantage of than what they might actually be worth. Well, and in, in additionally, in, in 
uh, in an Avaya deck, you're doing artifact things in mono green, which also tends to be something that doesn't have much in the way of support. I mean, there are some commanders that do have that tap ability where it's worthwhile waiting that turn because it's so effective and so efficient that when it does its thing, you can afford to maybe take a chance on it. I don't think, you know, making the 1-1 token is not that. Right, and that's the other thing. Ovaya is also one of those commanders who it gets better the better you're already doing. The construct that she can make for her final activated ability is going to be good based on how many creatures you already have. So it kind of also, in addition to being a monocolored commander, in addition to being a commander that deals with some artifact stuff in a color that isn't necessarily artifacts, in addition to having a tap ability that you have to wait for, it's also a little bit win more because it gets better the better you already are at. Like, it gets good when your board position's already good, which means that it's harder to restart when you have to if you get set back to square one. And a lot of those things, it's not to say that Ovaya is necessarily bad, but it is harder to make powerful just because there are all of those uh, little things in the way, which are not necessarily roadblocks that all of the other commanders that we've talked about have experienced. All right, last on our list for commanders that can be difficult to make powerful. What's this final category, Dana? This is commanders with a prohibitive mana cost. And to give you an example, we'll take a look at Vishkal Blood Arbiter. Uh, that's a 5-5 five, five with flying and lifelink. When you sacrifice a creature, you can put X plus one counters on Vishkal, where X is a sacrificed creature's power. So there's a sack outlet baked right into that that buffs your commander and doesn't require you to spend any mana. And you can also remove all plus one counters from Vishkal to give target creature minus one, minus one to under turn for each counter removed this way, which is also a useful ability. That sounds like a really great commander until you look at the very top line where it shows a casting cost of four white, black, black for seven mana total. I'm going to level with you guys. I love Vishkal so much, but that casting yeah, cost. Yeah, Vishkal is a great looking card if you read everything but that casting cost. That's It's just so much. <laughs> the second time that you have to cast Vishkal... It's going to be nine mana? No, ma'am. That's just way too difficult for us to do, especially if we're not in colors that are going to, you know, ramp us almost as if by accident. You have to right. work really hard to get to that particular level of mana, and that's just a really tall order, even if the abilities are really good. And there are a ton of commanders that fit within this category of having really high mana costs, ones that I would love to try. I think that Teriel is really interesting. That was a Mardu commander that steals creatures from your opponent's graveyards at random. But again, it's like seven mana. That's just tough yeah. to contend with. Uh, Kron the Dawnclad is an interesting commander if you want to play Selesny Enchantress, except for Kron costs six mana, and there's no colorless in those pips. It's triple white, trip green which is a really challenging thing to sometimes hit, particularly if the payoff isn't as disgusting as a Niv-Mizzet payoff. Like, like you can get away with that when, when the card is as strong as Niv-Mizzet. When it's just an okay, maybe Enchantress commander, that's a, that's a pretty big ask. Yeah. So those were some of the different types of commanders or different patterns that we've seen that can make it a little bit more difficult for a commander to rise up to a power level compared to the starting positions that some other commanders have. You know, the commanders that are dependent upon a set mechanic and they don't have too much support because that mechanic was only in one set, obscure tribes or commanders with sort of divided abilities or really high mana costs. And you compare that to the previous list where we were looking at Yarok or Tulane who were rewarding you for doing things you were already going to do or Prosh who has an immediate impact on the board 
board no matter what else the rest of your deck is doing. And there are just clearly some different speed bumps that some commanders are going to have to get over in order to make themselves rise up to that power level. Again, we don't want to use this to say that those commanders can't become powerful, just that some of these different aspects do require you to do a little bit more work. But that's not the only thing that we wanted to talk about on this episode. We also wanted to talk about something that I am... I guess for lack of a better term, sort of calling a capped potential conundrum. I know it needs a better name. Um, but what's sort of coming to mind is that in some video games, for example, like a role-playing game, you might get a character who starts super, super weak, but has the greatest potential in your party to be the most powerful later on. So they sort of start at like level one, but they can ratchet up to level 10 with enough dedication and, you know, putting enough time to uh, giving them experience. Sort of think like in Pokemon, a Magikarp eventually evolving into a Gyarados. It takes some time, but it goes from zero to 60 really awesome. We also, though, in some of those games, get characters that start off really powerful to begin, say at like a four or a five or something, but their greatest potential is actually capped at like a seven or an eight, and they're never actually going to get up to a 10 necessarily. And I just kind of wanted to poke around and see if there are some commanders that fit within those different uh, descriptions as well, sort of this capped potential conundrum. And we wanted to take a moment to talk about some commanders that might fit within those ranges as well. So let's start with that first one, sort of the Magikarp into the Gyarados. What is an example of a commander that starts really low? If the deck isn't built super optimally, it can be a little bit crummy maybe, but if built excessively well, it can rise to the top of the heap. What's an example of one of those commanders that starts low and can go super high? Uh, Yisan Wanderer Bard would be a good example of that. It, it does have that problem we mentioned before of it being a tap ability that requires a full turn for you to use. So that's a little bit off-putting at first glance. You're just going to go tutor for a creature, which is valuable um, and, and a useful thing to do, but it's also capped based on the, the counters on Yassan, so you're stuck you know, going low and having to maintain multiple turns to get Yassan out. So again, that doesn't look that powerful. But once people kind of cracked that code and realized, oh, you can go get a combo that goes into a thing into a thing, then it gets much, much stronger once you follow that real specific clever build path. Yeah, exactly. You can use Yisan's ability, you pay three mana, and he has to go find a one mana creature, like what, an Elvish Mystic, and then next turn you'd have to wait, and then you might maybe like an Elvish Visionary, like that doesn't sound super great, but it turns out you can do some like Wirewood Symbiote, untappy shenanigans, and then you combo out in mono green. So yeah, depending on the way that this deck is built, or the way that it's piloted, or uh, the your intimate knowledge of how a mono green combo might work, this could be a commander that doesn't seem to make a huge impact, or that makes the biggest impact. And I've actually seen, you know, the version of Yassan in the wild that isn't built to combo where the person actually isn't aware that there's a combo out there they can go get. They're just running it as, I'm going to go grab some elves. So that deck is a thing out there that I've seen in shops before. Yeah, absolutely. Really curious commander. It took me a solid couple of years to find out that Yisan had combo potential, and I'd been playing commander for a long time by that point. So, yeah, not the type of thing that necessarily immediately jumps out to you, but once you find out that it's there, that's definitely a really big evolution for sure. Another example that comes to mind here is the card Circuit Demir Lobotomist. And I'm going to read this one because I don't think anyone remembers what this card does. Circuit Demir Lobotomist is a four mana Demir commander from the original Ravnica set. It's a two, three human wizard that says whenever you play a blue spell, you remove the top card of target library from the game. And whenever you play a black spell, you remove the top card of target library from the game. So if you play a blue and black spell, you can do that twice, basically. 
Sir Q also says your opponents can't play non-land cards with the same name as a card removed from the game with Sir Q Demir Lobotomist. Well, in Commander, that's basically never going to matter because there aren't any copies of any cards. They're all singleton, right? What makes Sir Q actually any good? This sounds really like it's going to be at level zero. How does it get up to something like nine or ten? With infinite combos. Once you get some type of combo loop where you're able to cast the same blue spell over and over and over again with some type of infinite mana capsize shenanigans or something like that with a buyback spell, yeah, Sir Q can exile everyone else's libraries. Just straight up targets a library and exiles all the cards by looping a random spell that has buyback. It's pretty darn crazy and not the type of thing that you would usually expect from this commander that doesn't even look like it would do anything at all in EDH but it turns out totally can when you go infinite. Yeah, it turns out, you know, you, you play infinite mana, you're going to find a way to win. I mean, it, it's unheard of, I know. Nobody's ever done that before. <laughs> yeah, that is sort of another thing that I suppose that we should mention. Sometimes it's the infinite mana that makes the commander more potent, but that is just one of those things that kind of wasn't on my radar for a while. I didn't know until very recently that Sir Q. Demir Lobotomist had a competitive build, but turns out that it can, and that's just an example of a commander that might not do anything at all, or might do everything, in fact. Uh, Matt, what's an example of a commander for you that starts kind of low, but has the potential to be really, really powerful? So this is one that I played myself, and I was kind of in the same boat where I I didn't think it was too terribly powerful, but then I see all these people playing these terribly powerful versions of the deck. So Derevi Imperial Tactician is a deck that, to me, at first glance at least, doesn't seem that crazy. So Derevi is a Bant commander, just a green, a white, and a blue for a 2-3 bird wizard. Has flying and reads whenever a Derevi Imperial Tactician enters the battlefield or a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, you may tap or untap target permanent. Then you can pay one in Bant colors to put Derevi onto the battlefield from the command zone. Now, all those don't seem too terribly crazy at first, but then you look at the commander page on EDH rec and you see winter orb and you see all these type of stacks effects that make sure nobody gets to untap or do a whole lot of anything except for you because what you're doing is you're tapping and untapping your own permanence so it's a little wild it's a little crazy but when you build derevi the optimal way it is very very hard to get out from underneath a derevi deck when you just look at it and you say oh you're doing tap and untap types of things yeah it really seemed I, I don't know i this was also just kind of a thing for me when i first saw derevi i wasn't personally very impressed i was kind of like eh take it or leave it but no it turns out that derevi's really 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 nasty if it's built that optimal way otherwise it might just be doing a couple of polite tappy untappy shenanigans and it's not necessarily the most powerful that i've seen but as soon as you start bringing the stacks to the table absolutely crazy making yeah, I mean, there's definitely that Derevi bird tribal deck out there that I've seen before where they're just using the ability to, you know, tap a couple of blockers out of the way. Yeah, I it's to the point, especially just given the notoriety of Derevi, that I'm not sure that I would necessarily be able to trust anyone who brought a Derevi to the table, that they're just doing something innocent like bird tribal because of the reputation that this commander now has. And that isn't something that it necessarily began with either. It might have taken a quick second for people to pick up on that. But as soon as you pick up on it, oh, this commander that looks little innocent turns out not to be innocent at all. Um, another commander that kind of jumps to my mind in terms of a commander that can be, you know, sort of way down at the zero or way up high at the level 10 or something like that um, would actually probably be Kyrick, son of Yogmoth. This is the seven mana black commander that 
costs him Phyrexian mana, so you can pay life instead of the black symbols in his mana cost, and then he does that to the rest of your black spells as well. He makes all of the black symbols in your spells and abilities, you can pay them with two life instead of paying the black mana, turning all of your stuff into Phyrexian mana, which is really powerful, especially because he has lifelink and gets bigger the more black spells that you pay. But what I think is kind of important about Keurig is that if the deck isn't built super optimized around him, that could actually be a commander that costs you life and sets you back quite a lot. When you first play Keurig, probably on turn 4 or turn 5 or something like that, he's most likely going to be paid with Phyrexian mana and cost you 6 life. And if your deck isn't prepared to take super big advantage of the different you know, crazy stuff that he can do, you might be actually setting yourself back in life points and then he might get immediately removed. But if Garrick is built really, really super well, he can do some crazy gross mono black storm stuff. So he really does oscillate between that, you know, not doing too much or doing a lot of the things sort of power levels. Yeah, I mean, the deck definitely punishes you for, for whiffing or making a mistake. And that's kind of what balances it out, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really on a knife's edge there. And I think I should probably clarify, I'm pretty sure that I've seen some members of the competitive EDH crowd who have said that Kyrick isn't necessarily 100% within the realm of CEDH commanders, but it is still one of those commanders that operates within either the zero miles per hour or like the 100 miles per hour at most tables. It's either sort of setting its owner back or it's setting its owner so far ahead that it's really difficult to catch up with. And it really goes between that really low power level or that really high power level. Even if it's not a CEDH commander, when it's tuned that far, it functions like a CEDH level deck at a casual table. So right. it does have the ability to go up that high when tuned successfully and played successfully. Is there another example that jumps to mind for you for commanders that go between those super low or super high power levels? Uh, one that we've discussed in the past that we kind of slept on when it was first revealed was General Tazri, uh, the allied tribal commander that lets you search up an ally. You know, I think we've probably all seen some kind of ally tribal Tazri decks that are just playing a five-color ally list that's going to search up some value creatures, kind of like Yassan does, and not do anything too exciting. But there's also a general Tazri combo list that's a CEDH-level deck that can straight up win games um, very, very easily, and that's a pretty huge leap from that base-level deck to that top deck. I've seen some pretty interesting general Tazri decks, especially if they're using like Rite of Replication on any of their allies to then get a whole bunch of ally triggers with a bunch of Halimar excavators or something like that. But I can also see what you mean where a bunch of those allies, their beneficial ally triggers that they get a plus one counter on them or something like that, which doesn't right. necessarily appear to be the most insane payoff. So a simple ally tribal might not look any more risky or inherently more dangerous than some other typical tribal lists. But then it can also drift into some really, really crazy stuff like the competitive stuff that you mentioned, right. too. Yeah, Tazri, you can really make it as casual or as competitive as you want Tazri to be. If you want to just play, you know, Akum Fire Slingers, you can do that and you're probably going to have, you know, a decent time. Or you can get real cutthroat and, like Joey said, mill everybody out with whatever those obscure allies are that nobody ever plays except in these dedicated Tazri lists. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff there. Some commanders that can be, you know, down a little bit lower on the power level or go crazy up high and maybe aren't all the time going to fit within that middle section. There are what we're trying to say here is just that there are maybe some commanders that fit around like the power levels of the twos, the threes, the fours or fit within the power levels of the sevens, the eights, the nines, the tens, and not really ever approach within the five or the six or something. They kind of oscillate between the two extremes. 
now let's sort of compare that to the commanders that actually might just stay within the middle. They might operate between five, six, seven, eight, but don't ever necessarily drift down to like a power level of a one or a two or a three, and they can't always approach all the way up to a nine or a 10. What are some commanders that you guys can think of that sit sort of within the middle? They start at a high power level, but their power level is kind of capped. Uh, one of the ones that definitely comes to mind for me is Tatiova Benthic Drood. Um, we talked about Tatiova again quite a bit as just being a commander that generates insane value. You get rewarded for doing the thing you already do. But I think the problem everyone um, has seen with Tatiova is it sometimes gets tricky to win games. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, such a gross ability. I can't believe that they put that ability on an uncommon where landfall, whenever you get a land, you draw a card and gain a life on this five mana, three, three, merfolk. Absolutely insane that that is an uncommon. That seems so crazy powerful. But you're right to point out that it can sometimes be difficult to win with her. Yeah, particularly if you're looking to do something outside of the usual, hope I have a bunch of bodies in play when I draw that crater hoof. <laughs> yeah, I mean, drawing a bunch of cards is a great way to find a win condition, but sure. it does sort of feel like the Tatiova decks aren't using stuff like Laboratory Maniac to win the game because that's always the best thing to do. It sometimes feels to me like a Tatiova deck is using an effect like that or the Jace Wielder of Mysteries, uh, those effects that win you the game when you draw the final card or if you would draw you know what I'm talking about. Everyone knows what Labman does. Um, it sort of feels like they lean into those because they don't have too many other options is kind of yeah. sometimes the impression that I get. For sure. Are there any that jump out at you, Matt? So one that jumps out to me that actually has a pretty good reputation and, you know, it's rightfully earned. Grand Arbiter, Augustine. People talk a lot about how, you know, you see it at the table. You you will get some groans if you're playing Grand Arbiter. And what Grand Arbiter does, it's two and Azorius, so a white and a blue. White spells you cast cost one less to cast. Blue spells you ca you cast also cost one less. And spells your opponents cast cost one more to cast. So it's kind of a tax on what everybody else is doing and discounts your own. But to me, every Grand Arbiter deck that I've sat down next to has kind of struggled with the same thing that Tatiova does. That initial bump of taxing other people and getting your own discount, it's inconvenient and it's very, very annoying. I, I can't count the times that it threw me off in those first early turns trying to navigate how I was going to sequence everything. But once the game got going and once you know Grand Arbiter was removed a time or two, the Grand Arbiter deck didn't really do a lot either. There wasn't a whole lot of ways for them to, to close out the game because while Grand Arbiter, the commander of the deck, has a decent effect, it doesn't actually win the game. It just slows everybody else down from actually doing their own game plans. Yeah, preventing other people from winning doesn't always mean that you are winning. That deck is absolutely gross, and it really can be a very difficult slog to play against. It has a super big impact. Its effect is definitely really good, but it's also really difficult to close things out. So it does have a bit of a capped power level compared to some of the other stuff that we've seen, where, you know, a Yarok can drop a Grey Merchant of Asphodel into play and it's going to completely decimate the table super, super easy. And just doing that a few times, it's going to close things up for Yarok super easy compared to Grad Arbiter, who doesn't have as many of those same type of deals. And this might be a good time to note, we're talking specifically maybe about the commanders here. Um, Grand Arbiter's ability as a commander is capped because 
that tax is always going to be the same, no matter how much mana your opponent has and how far the game has progressed. If anything, it becomes less effective the longer the game goes. But in a CEDH level deck where they're playing in a really, really narrow window for the most part, and oftentimes not relying on the commander to be what wins the game, it's just a value piece that you always have access to. So <clears throat> the Grand Arbiter decks at the CEDH level may be super, super powerful, but it's not necessarily because of anything Grand Arbiter does that's all that powerful. It's just consistent and omnipresent. Yeah. Dana, is there another one that comes to mind for you? Um, I think Narset probably comes to mind here as a commander that starts pretty high, but it does have a cap. The Narset win condition you generally see sometimes at Super Friends, but for the most part, it's people that are just trying to loop time warps and loop extra combat steps to basically never pass off their turn until they can win, usually via some kind of combat damage. Um, that's really, really strong. And it's relatively easy to set up, but it's also pretty easy to interrupt. Narset doesn't have haste. And it's a pretty easy plan to figure out once everyone knows what you're going to do. So Narset's absolutely a boogeyman at a lot of casual tables because it's a super, super strong deck. But if you're talking CEDH, it's really not in that class because it's a kind of expensive commander to cast. The entire deck revolves around it and everyone knows what you're doing and can interrupt it. That especially that note that the entire strategy revolves around the commander. She does have natural hex proof and some yeah. evasion for sure. But when an entire deck hinges upon the actions of a single card, that is itself a vulnerability. So there is sort of a power level cap on that mm -hmm. compared to some other decks who can spread out the threats in a bit more uh, diverse ways for sure. Another two commanders that come to mind for me that start really crazy high in terms of how much they do, but which do probably have a bit of a power cap to them would actually be our front runners, Muldrotha the Gravetide and Atraxa Praetor's Voice. Muldrotha can play you stuff from your graveyard and Atraxa can proliferate every turn. At worst, Muldrotha is a 6-6. I mean, that's really awesome. And it can get you back lands or artifacts or creatures from your graveyard. That's really, really cool. But there is still sort of a pacing issue to it. It's only going to be one of each of those things per turn. It's good, but it's not, you know, exploding. It's gradual. And the same is true for Atraxa. Atraxa, at worst, has like 98,000 different keywords on it, which it doesn't need. And it's going to proliferate your stuff, which is crazy. But again, the progress is gradual. There are a lot of different ways that you can interrupt those strategies. Muldrotha will be very susceptible to a Bajuka Bog, for instance, which hurts in my heart to say. And Atraxa... It's a thing that will take a lot of time to get going, but if you don't let it get going, if you interrupt, it will never have the opportunity to snowball. And the snowball never reaches that really exponential level necessarily. It's very, very linear rather than an exponential increase of going crazy. Those commanders do have a really big impact, but they don't have the absolute biggest impact. I'm not sure that they would ever reach the power level of a 9 or a 10, even though they kind of start at like a 6 or a 7. Yeah, I I, th I think to a lot of to a lot of casual players, I think they feel like they're going to reach that level, but I think the reality is th they just don't for all the reasons you mentioned. Yeah, Moldrotha suffers extremely from the case of, sure, I got all this value, but what am I actually doing with it? A lot of people want to say that Moldrotha decks tend to dirtle, which they can, but Moldrotha decks are actually taking a lot of game actions. It's just it takes some time to sometimes play those out. So it's not that they're doing nothing. They're actually getting quite a bit. It's just there's so much going on there that it takes some time to actually play out each turn. So 
it does make a lot of sense that, you know, sometimes you get so much value, it turns into kind of what we said about Tatiova. You have all this value, but how are you actually closing the game out? And that is definitely one thing that the typical Muldrotha deck does definitely suffer from. That's another thing. I think this was a refrain that we kind of mentioned a few times on our episode about win conditions as well. Sometimes value is the enemy of victory. A lot of the commanders that we just labeled as being, you know, sort of within the middle tier, they're powerful but capped. They are definitely going to be the ones that accrue you a lot of value over time. But value alone isn't going to win you a game. So you do need a bit of extra oomph, a bit of extra bite that you might see in other commanders. And we just wanted to sort of talk about these different types, these different categories of power, basically, because the discussion of power level is becoming a more and more frequent thing when people sit down to play against one another. And it's not just that everyone might have a different indication of what their power scale is. My version of a commander uh, that sits at a 6 in terms of you know a scale of 1 to 10 might be different than your conception of what a commander that would be at a 6 is at. So trying to find a common ground there is good, but also some of these commanders are going to be built in different ways or will operate between two different types of power levels. There might be a commander who's either really bad or really good, or there's a commander that's only going to be good but never great. There's a lot of nuance to this, so we just wanted to try and throw our hat into the ring there to mention that power level is a really interesting and difficult discussion to have and it really does depend sometimes on what your deck is doing and dana i know that you've also got one more point too about how power level isn't strictly decided just by the commanders either yeah i kind of i kind of mentioned this with grand arbiter but i think it, it, it's worth noting here that some of the absolute scary commanders in cedh are the partners but that isn't necessarily because of the power level of those commanders um, like I said, with Grand Arbiter, it's the fact that it's almost always a useful, omnipresent thing in the command zone. I think the same tends to be true with the partners. Not only do they give you access to multiple colors um, from the command zone, they give you access to not one but two useful creatures there that are good in a lot of situations. To use Thrasios, for an example, that lets you spend four mana to, to scry down and get a card – there's nothing inherently busted about spending four mana to get a card unless you are looking at a deck that's filled with ways to generate infinite mana. So it's just an enabler for the already super, super strong things you're doing. Um, and I think a lot of the partners tend to be that way and things like Grand Arbiter tends to be that way where it's not necessarily the commander, it's what the commander lets your super strong things do. Yeah, I think sometimes too, it's some with, especially with these partner commanders, it's giving certain commanders color access they shouldn't have color access to. So Thrasios, for example, giving that type of commander access to black by you know partnering it with Vile Smasher, which I know is kind of the, the thing to do, that's just not what Thrasios was completely designed with. I know they were designed to be open-ended, but sometimes it's too open and the, the payoff is almost too generic. So giving those types of advantages to specific commanders. You know, sometimes we say that, you know, restrictions breed creativity with commanders that doesn't exist. You can partner up with pretty much anything and make four color decks and debate all you want, whether or not partners was a good idea or it was executed well. What happened was you gave some, some color access to commanders that, you know, probably didn't have that ability completely in mind so you did lead to these good stuff, very, very just generically powerful 99 or 98 card decks, for example. 
Yeah, the thing that we simply want to say here is something that I think we've also probably mentioned before on a previous episode, but it isn't always the commander that is going to be the biggest indication of a deck's power level all of the time, because it really can come down to the stuff that you put into the deck. We spent the majority of this episode talking about specific examples or different types of categories of legendary creatures that might make something more or less powerful, like Yarok. It's pretty difficult to make that you know deck bad, but at the same time, the ultimate stuff is what's in the 99, and that is one of the lessons that we've learned from partners, and that's one of the lessons that we want to take away here, too. What you put into the deck really, really matters. If you've got a Muldrutha deck with 99 islands and nothing else, that's going to sort of dictate your power level a little bit, for instance. <laughs> So the 99 really does matter, and if you're doing combo stuff in the deck, then it may not necessarily matter what your commander is doing, but if you're doing some synergistic stuff, your commander could be the most important stuff, like we saw with the Narset example. Power level is a very nuanced discussion, and there are commanders that operate at all different types of levels and within different ranges, and there are commanders that don't necessarily subscribe to a specific point within the power level scale as well. So this is becoming a very interesting discussion to have when you sit down against a stranger, but also just try to think critically about what your commander does too and where it might fit within these different ranges of power so that you can find the best way to have a pretty evenly keeled game with other players. Alrighty, before we close up our show, let's finish up with our final segment and challenge some statistics. There's a lot of stats here on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with them. Sometimes we think that a card is seeing either too much play or maybe a little too little play. So we'd like to challenge the stats here. Matt, what is your challenge this week? So my challenge this week is for Greven Predator Captain Dex. Joey, I understand you have one. Ooh. I do. So this one, I'm not sold on. I'm not really sure how good this is necessarily. It's only in 49 decks, but I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on it. So it's currently not showing up on any commander's page at all because this thing is barely played in any decks to begin with. But I'm talking about Minion of the Waste. It is back from uh, Tempest, and it is three black, black, black for a star, star. Has trample and reads when you play Minion of the Waste, pay any amount of life. And Minion of Waste, or Minion of the Waste, has power and toughness equal to the amount of life paid. What do you think? Now, I know you get to pay any amount of life. You can sacrifice it to Greven's abilities. It seems like something worth trying out. It, like I said, it's not showing up in really any decks. I probably own more decks than people have, you know, put this into, according to EDH Rec. Um, no, I don't think that I would play this. Six mana, even if it does have trample, paying my life and then losing more life on top of that, I don't think that this fits. So am I getting this right? You're challenging a card as being played too much, even though it's only played in 49 decks? I was thinking it might be worth a spot because of all those different cards that are being played in Greven decks. So you have Wall of Blood, for example, which is just pay one life and Wall of Blood gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. You're playing all sorts of effects that you can pay life at will, even with uh, Villas, the, the demon where you can pay a couple mana and pay two life at will. So with those types of effects, I was wondering if in certain Greven decks, maybe if you're playing fling effects or anything like that, if Minion of the Waste would be worth a slot because you can pay life at will, and you can fling it, do any sort of thing with a big, big beater with Trample. I agree with your point. Six mana is quite a bit, but I think it's probably worth a shot or at least playtesting with in more than just 49 decks in the entire amount, especially considering Greven is a fairly new commander. 
I don't know. The six mana really breaks it for me. If you don't have Graven mm-hmm. in play, this is really tough. And to draw a substantial number of cards from this thing, you'd have to pay a lot of life and then lose even more life. I'm not sure that I'm sold on this one. I think 49 decks is exactly accurate for it. All right. Well, that's fair enough. It was something that I thought was interesting, at least. Wanted to see what somebody who's actually played a Greven deck <laughs> had to say about it. Yeah, the thing for Graven for me is just that I can usually draw like five cards with a really tiny creature that only costs like two mana, maybe three mana. So I think that's the other thing that I'm comparing this creature to. I do like having outlets to pay life, though. I think that you are hitting on a, a good point here that paying life in Graven is very powerful because he wants to power himself up as soon as he can. But this particular creature seems a little too both expensive and risky for necessarily that similar payoff compared mm-hmm. to some of the other stuff you can already do. It is very, very all in. You have to really commit yourself to that. Opens it up to getting blown out. You know, say you pay a bunch of life, go down to four or five life. Somebody can just dome you real quick and then, well, shuffle up again. So I do get your concerns. It was something that I was I was interested in. But I I just, I don't play enough black, so I wanted to ask somebody who actually plays <laughs> the color in any of their decks. If anything, it is definitely good that you're pointing out cards from stuff like Tempest, really, really old cards, really obscure stuff, because that is absolutely the type of stuff that we should be looking for when it comes to new commanders. We can't just play the stuff that came in the pre-con. We can't just play the stuff that came within the past two sets. There are some old gems that do some weird stuff. And when you've got a commander who turns your life loss into more power, obscure stuff is absolutely the kind of place that you should be looking to find good synergies. Dana, what's your challenge? Well, if you like stuff from Tempest, I've got one from Weatherlight for you, Joey. Okay. Uh, Talking about a mono blue counterspell that costs one mana, Abjure. Sacrifice a blue permanent to counter target spell. It's in 673 decks. Now, that's kind of a steep price to pay. You have to lose a blue permanent to counter a spell for one mana. However, there's multiple blue commanders that just make blue tokens regularly. Whether you're talking Talrand in that particular deck, it makes you a token when you cast a spell, so it replaces the one you sacrifice. But you've got things like a Locust God that makes red and blue tokens, and Alela, Artful Provocateur, our new fairy commander that makes blue fairy tokens as well. Uh, Abjur's in 20% of Talran decks, and it's in less than 2% of Locust God decks, and less than 1% of Alela decks. And it's only in 673 decks total. It should be in a much larger percentage of all three of those commanders. What a weird card sacrifice one of your fairies or your drakes to counter something for one mana in blue i do not think that people are going to see that coming that's bizarre especially in that that alola deck where you're looking at three colors and it becomes very difficult to leave up multiple mana particularly like two blue to cast a counter spell that's a perfect spot for that counter spell yeah what a weird card really crazy find okay all about the older sets mine is also going to be a little bit on the uh older set side, I suppose, but not quite as ancient as the uh, the cards that you guys have picked for your challenges. Mine is going to be the card Clock Spinning. And yes, Cameron from Lab Maniacs, if you are listening, I am stealing this per your recommendation. I played against Cameron both in Vegas and in Seattle at the Command Fests. And uh, yeah, Clock Spinning was 
an absolute beater in his Will and Rowan Kenrith deck. Those were the partner blue and red Planeswalkers. So Clock Spinning comes from Time Spiral. It is an instant with buyback for three mana. Just costs one mana, but if you pay the buyback total of four to get the spell back into your hand, and its effect is so strange. You choose a counter on target permanent or suspended card, and you remove that counter from that permanent or card, or you put another one of those counters onto it. So you can remove suspend counters, or you can add counters on things. This can be really strange to mess with enemy planeswalkers loyalty, but it's even better the way that Cameron used it where he added more loyalty. And the reason that I think it was so good in his Will and Rowan Kenrith deck is that Will Kenrith has this nasty ability to make the spells that you cast that turn two mana cheaper, which applies to that buyback cost. So he would use the minus two loyalty ability on Will, then he would play cock spinning a whole bunch to put a bunch of loyalty counters onto his planeswalkers in that deck. It came out of nowhere and suddenly he was ulting planeswalkers left and right. Clock spinning did a lot of work and I think that it deserved to see a lot more play in Will and Rowan Kenrith decks than just 17% of the 361 decks that they have so far. That's a really interesting option if you have a lot of planeswalkers and want to put a lot more counters onto them. It is an at-will one-target proliferation ability that can really catch people off guard just like it caught me off guard. Yeah, it definitely seems like something worth exploiting a little bit in the right deck. <laughs> exploiting is the perfect term for it. It did a surprising amount of work. And unfortunately, since it had buyback, I knew he always had it and would be able to do it again for the next Planeswalker. He got so many emblems in play, it was just mean. If you like Planeswalkers and you like cheap spells with something like a Will, Kenrith, Clock Spinnings do some, it does some really good work for sure. Alrighty, folks, any last minute ideas, thoughts, feelings that you have about commanders that are accidentally powerful, commanders that operate within weird sections of the power scale, or even just discussions on power levels in general? I mean, I think the power level conversations need to be exactly that, conversations. Uh, it, it's so easy to sit down with, you know, your buddies that you've been playing with. I'm sure, you know, if, if you two and I, we had played more games, we'd have a pretty good understanding of what we all look for. And I'm pretty sure we do just in these conversations anyways. But if we go and sit with somebody else from different podcasts or different play groups, those conversations need to start over again. So just making sure, you know, you understand what everybody else is doing and, and you know, practice those good communication skills to make sure that there aren't misunderstandings and, and people are on very, very different power level scales. Yeah, I think there's, there's just no downside for the most part to spending a few extra seconds talking about it. Um, you know, I've started throwing a little bit extra information out there during that power conversation. I have a tower end deck, for example, and I tend to mention there's like six counter spells in this tower end deck to make sure they know it's not the 25 counter spell <laughs> tower end deck. Even though the power level may not be that much different between those two decks, somebody may want the option to not play 25 counter spell, play against 25 counter spell tower end, whereas they might be fine with the, you know, six counter spell version. So, in addition to power, I do think it's good to have that little extra conversation maybe as well. There's just no downside to it. Yeah, and really what we also wanted to spend this episode on is just to mention that there are some commanders that start a lot higher up the ladder than some of the other commanders that take a bit more work to get to that same level. With that, though, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. 
And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander Sprue to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. So like I was saying about Joey and how he's so silly. That's the worst you can do in my absence (laughs) is call me silly. You can do better than that, Mr. Morgan. That Joey, he's financially irresponsible when it comes to balancing his checkbook. Burn! I, I appreciate Burn! your I appreciate your confidence in my abilities. It's nice to have somebody believe in me. He <laughs> he almost never starts his day with a balanced breakfast. Oh, that's the thing I'm sensitive about. <laughs> <laughs>